clearly, I spend a lot of time thinking about the books I read when I was younger. But for the last 20 plus years, one book has had a very specific place in my memory. And I've never been sure why. The book is The Broccoli Tapes by Jan Slepian. It was published in 1989, and I read it somewhere around 2000 or 2001. I'll break down the details of my weirdly vivid memories of the broccoli tapes in this episode, so stay tuned. I know this book isn't the most mainstream, but if you're not familiar with it, that's totally cool, because the story is a simple one. Main character Sarah has recently moved from Boston to Hawaii with her family. The move is temporary, but still very challenging for our protagonist. There are two bright spots in Sarah's life though. One, the opportunity to participate in her classroom's oral history project from afar by recording dispatches from her days on a series of cassette tapes. And two, Broccoli, the cat that she and her brother find while exploring some nearby lava rocks. In the Broccoli tapes, Sarah bonds with Broccoli, her brother, and a local boy named Eddie, whose complicated home situation reveals itself over time. Sarah also mourns a series of losses and learns a lot about grief in the process. Today, my guests and I work to unpack why this book has loomed so large in my memory. We do quite a bit of cover analysis, which is a lot of fun. We talk about loneliness, the challenges of moving, sibling relationships, different ways to grieve, and Sarah's sexual awakening. This is some steamy middle grade, my friends. We also chat about the book's bizarre focus on cat breeding and on some seriously bizarre racial white savior undertones that we picked up on with the cats. There's a lot of discussion about loss and grief, so please be mindful of that before you jump in. We also discuss parental abuse very briefly. Listen with care. I learned about today's guest after several previous guests offered glowing reviews of her book on the podcast, and I am so glad that the SSR world gave me the opportunity to meet and chat with her. Nikki Payne calls herself Jane Austen's sassy black friend and an anthropologist who cannot turn it off. She loves to force her characters into new environments and new cultures, and in finding love, they change the way they see the world. Her romances, inspired by the classics, turn expectations on their head. They are cultural commentary for the hopeless romantic. Pride and Protest, a Pride and Prejudice remix about which I have heard nothing but rave reviews, is now available, and I can't wait to see what Nikki does next. Follow her on Instagram and Twitter at Nikki Payne Books. If you love listening to this conversation with Nikki, maybe this should be the week that you share about SSR on social media. Take a screenshot of the episode wherever you're listening to it and post it to your Instagram story. Tag me at SSRPod so I can see it and share. You can also share about the podcast on Twitter, where you can tag me at SSRPod, and on Facebook, where we are searchable as the SSR Podcast or the SSR Book Club, and wherever else you like spending your time on social media. I would also invite you to leave a five-star rating or review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. We can never have too many of those. They help those platforms connect new listeners to SSR so we can continue growing our family. There's also the Patreon family, which is a cozy subgroup within the larger listener community that brings me a lot of personal joy. Patrons contribute a few dollars to the show every month, but they get so much in return. You can become a patron for as little as $1 per month, which works out to literally 25 cents per episode. That's way less pricey than getting yourself a fancy cup of coffee. 
Patrons are invited to join our Discord group, be part of the SWR Book Club, listen to and participate in bonus episodes, read a monthly newsletter, hear exclusive Q&As from podcast guests, watch reading recap videos, and more. It's a ton of fun and a great way to support the pod too. Get all the details at www.patreon.com slash ssrpodcast or by going to www.ssrpodcast.com and clicking support at the top of the page. Find your next favorite audiobook at Libro.fm. That's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M and use code SSRPODCAST when prompted to get a two-month audiobook membership for the price of just one month. Libro.fm is a fantastic place to buy audiobooks because it supports indie booksellers instead of giant corporations. The audiobooks you buy there will sound and cost the same as the ones you buy from the big guys, but you can feel much better about purchasing them. Now let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Ali Hafkasik, freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Nikki. Welcome to SSR. Hey, I'm glad to be here. Thank you so much, Allie. This is an exciting day for me because this book, The Broccoli Tapes, is a book that's been very close to my heart for a long time, but I haven't quite known why. It's a book that I have very specific memories of reading as a kid. And after coming back to it this week, as I prepared to talk to you today, I've been trying to like unpack why that is because this isn't a book that was super popular. Most people I've spoken to in our SSR community aren't necessarily familiar with it. The author Jan Slepian was somewhat well known in the 90s and in the 80s, but there's like no reason this book should have stuck out to me, but it really did. So I want to unpack that. But first, I want to hear a little bit more about why you chose it, because if I'm remembering correctly, it was new to you. Yes, it was new to me. And I chose it because... When I kind of read a little bit about it, it just seemed to be a book about loneliness, which is interesting. I feel like it's very much kind of a space that we're living in right now in 2023. And even like kind of during and post-COVID, like this kind of sense of feeling alone and how people manage that is kind of interesting to me. Yeah, that's such a great point because the book centers on Sarah, who is a young girl who has moved temporarily with her family from Boston to Hawaii. And it seems like they're only there for a few months. So there's really no reason for her to make friends. And even if she wanted to, she's having a hard time connecting with anybody. And I agree with you. Like, I think that there's a nugget of that that almost all of us can relate to in 2023. I agree. I also think it's interesting to think about, like, in 2023, how Sarah would document this experience. Because in this book, The Broccoli Tapes, like it's written as sort of a transcript that she is putting together as an oral history for her class back at home. So like each chapter is a different tape, like a cassette tape. But I'm like, oh, in 2023, Sarah would totally have like a YouTube channel or she'd be making reels. (laughs) Oh my gosh. You know what I thought? I have a note here in this book. I said, was Sarah the first podcaster? 
I mean, like, oh. she was absolutely a podcaster. Like she was just like, and here we are. This is Sarah, you know, and this is this Hawaiian life. You know, she was just very. She was telling the the world about her life as she experienced it. I love that idea. Okay, so maybe Sarah is the reason that I podcast. <gasps> and you're like, why did this stick with me for so long? That's it. Yeah. That's it. Oh, wow. Okay. So that's something to consider as we continue down this road. Maybe these are the broccoli tapes. Here we are. The broccoli tapes, everybody. Checking in for the broccoli tapes with Allie and Nikki. 2023. (laughs) Click. Yeah. Every chapter begins with a click, ends with a click. It's super cute. I liked it because... Like, I don't know about you, Nikki, but when I was a kid, I loved an epistolary novel. Like, I loved a book that was written as a journal or a book that was written as letters. And this, like, does the same thing in that it gives you, as the reader, a really direct line to what's happening with Sarah. But it's a little bit of a twist on that, which I remember thinking was super cool. Yeah, I think it's a direct line. But I think the author actually does a really great job of giving you the the tension between, like, what she's sharing with the class and what she's experiencing because she had this other aspect of like click this is just for me which is very much the real it's very much a tiktok right <laughs> like that's the difference right the podcast is like this is for the class and then she had these little click moments where she's like i'm not sharing this with anyone or this is me being who i actually am it's like not a performance really for the class and those feel super intimate yeah that was for her like close friends list on instagram yeah, exactly. <laughs> So I'll share my memories of the book before we dive in a little bit more. And I think I mentioned this on Instagram briefly, not to my close friends list because I don't have one, but to like everybody who follows SSR. So I have a very vivid memory of reading this book and it's a very distinct cover. It has this bright yellow border. It's one of those Apple paperbacks. I had so many of them when I was a kid. My school library had so many of them when I was a kid. And it's a picture of a little girl in a a purple shirt with a black cat with the ocean behind her. Oh, yours is a little bit different, Nikki. Okay, wait, let me show you mine and we'll compare. So this is mine. Oh, yeah. Oh, that is different. Yeah, it's so funny. So is yours hardcover? It is. Classic. Oh, Okay. Someone's derelict library book. Wait, the cat on Nikki's looks like regal. Yeah. Like the cat looks like a statue. Yeah. I mean, they really oversold the cat because in the descriptions, it's pretty, pretty terrible. You know? Wow. Okay. And you have all three of the kids on the cover of yours. I and I only have Sarah. Well, That's so Sarah. interesting. Wow. Yeah. I only have Sarah. Fascinating. Okay, well, I'll have to make sure I have a picture of yours. I'm sure I can find it online so that I can show listeners the difference. But this is the cover and it has this like, I actually was lucky enough, I was in Hawaii not that long ago. And this pink flower, like I remember seeing pink flowers like this in Hawaii. But I remember, I remember this cover so clearly. I have this memory of sitting at my best friend's house. And you know, here I was so cool bringing my book to a sleepover. And I must have woken up before she did and I remember like leaning my back against like the threshold of her bedroom door early in the morning and reading this book it's so bizarre that that's it's so clear to me and I have some theories about why that might be I can only assume that I was maybe in like fifth or sixth grade at that time I guess that's further proven by some of my theories about why this book stuck with me because around that time I was getting ready to move 
And I was really nervous. And it was a move that we weren't making for a good reason. It was a really tough time in my family's life. I won't go into the details because it's really not a story that's mine to share. But it was a really stressful, upsetting time. And so I'm wondering if I latched on to Sarah's story. And like, even the fact that she was so heartbroken about leaving her class, I wanted to read this one excerpt from I think it's the first chapter or the first tape, where she's talking about how much I do. I'm just I'm very yeah. interested in this, like, of like, young, of young Allie latching on to this, this um, book, because the cover that you that you have, is the cover that you saw, right? Yeah. Is there anything about that cover? I feel like that's that cover is giving a very different thing than my cover is. With the Hawaii yeah. cover and Sarah by herself, this young woman who's like about to embark on something, like the reason why you picked that up is probably like equally interesting. Just if we did some cover analysis, like this looks like yeah. it's about to go down on mine. She does not look yeah. No, I love this. I love that we're doing this. Your cover actually looks sort of like like a cover for The Outsiders. Yes, yes. It looks like youth isolation, right? It looks like yeah, like these are disaffected teens. Yeah, here's some like tough kids from Hawaii yes. that will fuck you <laughs> up. And yeah. There's this giant. The cat looks more like a like a cougar, yes. or, but it looks like he looks like a big cat. Yes. who could kill you? Who could kill you? And this guy in the back definitely looks like he fucks. Like he just really. He's wearing a tank top. He's wearing a tank top, and I just <laughs> like when you compare yours. Is there a difference in like what you feel like you're about to experience when you pick that book up? Okay, I want to ask you, what do you think you're about to experience when you pick this book up? Okay, let me see the whole thing here. Okay, here's the whole experience. Okay, I honestly feel like she's about to have like a bomb ass time. Like (laughs) something about the flowers and the way she's like laying, she's laying in a carefree way. Like this bitch is worried. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like she's She's scared. she's, (laughs) She's scared. On your cover, she's carefree and the cat's behind her. And it's like, the story is about her having a cat. This story is about some cat having some people. Okay? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's like when people say, like, that dress is wearing you, you're not wearing that dress. And it's like, the people are wearing the cat. The cat is not wearing the people. This is Dana. Interesting. So I feel like I was drawn to this book because, yes, it's like clearly a fun tropical setting that we see on the cover I would say by the time I got to fifth or sixth grade when I when I think I probably picked it up I had read the vast majority of the other books in my school library so I was getting to a point where I was like oh this is a weird title the broccoli tapes whatever I also have always been an animal lover and the cat on this book looks super sweet and cute and then she is holding a tape recorder which I actually didn't see when I first saw it this time around but she's she and I think like you know, realistically, like she looks a lot like I did when I was a kid. And there's a big conversation to be had there about representation and like, who are we seeing on the covers of our books? But I looked like Sarah, I had dark hair, and I wore a lot of like purple t shirts and little white sneakers. And so there was probably something aspirational for me about this cover. Oh, I love that. I love that. There's like nothing tropical on this, by the way, they're on a rock. And like they could literally be just like leftovers from a deserted island. Do you know what I mean? There's no grain. It's rough. Yeah, it's rough. It's rough. <laughs> it's rough. Like where are their parents? They left them, obviously. Like <laughs> yeah, it really looks like the outsiders. Like that's what comes to mind when I see the cover. I can't get over how different these two covers are. I wonder if 
I bet that that cover, and again, I don't think that this book in either format was like a huge bestseller, but I wonder if in hardcover, it really did poorly. And so then when they went, when they went to design the paperback, they were like, like, we got to put in some flowers. Yeah. Let's stop depressing people. Like, (laughs) yeah. Yeah. So I wanted to be Sarah's friend. And I think that the cover, even now, like after reading this book again, this cover does not match the tone of the inside of the book. I do think that your cover, as frightening as it is, is perhaps like a little bit more honest to what you get on the inside. Yeah. So I do want to share that quote about Sarah's feelings about her teacher because this really resonated with me as a former and forever teacher's pet. She says, Miss Hasselbauer is my princess. When I told her that my family was going to Hawaii for five whole months, she thought I was crying because of leaving my friends. Well, I was, but also because of having to leave her. That's why I was so glad when she said I could still be part of the oral history project for social studies. It means she's still my teacher. She knew I felt bad about everybody in class making tapes about their family and all. This made me so sad. Aww. Poor Sarah. Yeah. That also, as the person who wanted to connect so deeply to the teacher. Wanted the teacher to see me as a as a human. Yeah, 100%. Like, I was definitely the kid that accidentally, like, well, or not so accidentally. I think I, more than one time, I probably cried on the last day of school. I think that I called my teacher's mom occasionally. Like, I just loved being in school, and I loved my teachers so much. I was actually, my sister, my younger sister is a second grade teacher. We were joking the other day because the parents of her students have such a direct line to her now because they have have all these like apps where she's sending them updates about their children's work all the time and she's so available to them. And so she's constantly getting direct messages from parents and even from her second graders. And she was making fun of me because she was like, if you had had this, you would be like sending these messages to your to your teachers all the time. Like, I love you. I miss you. Like, hope you're having a great weekend. And I feel like that's kind of how Sarah is in this book. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. So we're on the same page there. So they're there and she's not happy about it. She's there with her brother, Sam, who's older and her parents who are like trying their best kind of to make this a good experience for her. But I want to talk more about her relationship with Sam because I think that's really interesting. Yeah. What did you think when you first kind of started to observe the dynamic between the two of them? He's this kind of like distant older brother. They didn't have much of a relationship before when they were in Boston. And now they've been thrown together into the situation where they're both strangers. Yeah. And things start to change. Yeah. I think that, first of all, I love Sam. I feel like he was the philosopher king of the book. <laughs> yeah. He's just <laughs> always asking these questions that like really got me in the gut. But I will say that what was so interesting about Sam was that he, he he wasn't like used as this character that made her feel like she had someone with her. Like he was almost this character that proved how disconnected she was, right? She Like the way that she, I'm trying to find the exact moment where she introduces Sam. It's like, yeah, my brother's here, but he's never really here, right? The t- the, the vibe was like, yeah, my brother came, but like, what is that? Like, what does that even mean? Right. And so like her relationship with her brother was always about somehow about isolation, like making it even more isolated just by virtue of the fact that he was there. It's like his presence didn't add to her sense of of feeling connected. That's so interesting. Yeah. Because he's still like such a mystery to her at the beginning. And I feel like 
I feel like throughout the book, she learns more about him in bits and pieces. And I think that reflects the way many of us experience sibling relationships, or at least that's how I feel. Like, I feel like you, and this is true of all kinds of relationships, of course, you only really understand somebody in the context in which you actually spend time with them. But like, I know my sister's best in the context of like being with our family and being home and having dinner together and the occasional family vacation. But when I glimpse them in other environments or with other people, I learn things about them. And it's bizarre because you're like, that's not who I thought you were. And there's a moment in this book where Sam gets off a school bus and he's clearly upset and she she asks what's wrong. And he kind of tries to brush it off. Yeah. But she finds out that he's being bullied and that like these guys are kind of trying to stir up a fight with him. And he's like, yeah, but like, I don't want to fight. And you can tell that that's something like Sarah never would have considered before. Like, first of all, that her brother would be bullied. And second of all, that her her brother would really take a stand and be like, you can make fun of me all you want, but like, I'm not going to fight you. Yeah. Yeah. The brother, what I really kind of honestly loved about Sam was particularly this moment at the dinner table where he asked what I feel like is the theme of the book, you know, like she gave Sam the heavy lifting work. Well, he, he essentially said like, why love if it's going to do all of this? You know what I mean? Like this is, this wreaks havoc. Like why even, why even do it? And I feel like that was a broad theme of the, of the book is to like do something or, or kind of love bravely. If you think of like Eddie's dad, it was such a theme of the book and she just, she handed it to Sam because Sam had the kind of emotional maturity to say, this is bullshit. You know what I mean? To kind of look around. (laughs) What are we doing here? Yeah. No, that's why Sam became my favorite because he was just kind of asking these questions. There were equal parts kind of immature, but real for his age, like so real. Like this hurts. Why do we keep doing it? Yeah. And there are three, I would say like main moments of loss or of real tension in relationships. And I want to go through them one by one. But before we do that, I think we just need to talk about who Broccoli is because Broccoli is like the through line of the whole book. Broccoli is a cat. Broccoli is a cat. Broccoli is a cat who they meet on these lava rocks. um, And it sort of brings Sarah and Sam together because it's something that they are keeping a secret between them. Their parents don't want them interacting with this wildlife. I thought the parents were overreacting a little bit. Like they got so mad. Yeah which I thought was kind of strange, but they've decided that they don't want their parents to know that they're continuing to feed this cat. And it's just this little ritual they have every day. And their goal is to get Broccoli to warm up to them. And when Broccoli finally comes close to Sarah, she says it was the best day of her life, which as an animal lover, just like, oh, broke me. And I thought was so sweet. So that's who Broccoli is. Um, That's the big cat on Nikki's cover and the tiny pet cat on my cover. So we have Broccoli. But we also have three like really heavy moments. And let's start with grandma because that's, I think, the first one that happens. And grandma comes to stay with the family and Sarah immediately realizes that something is wrong with grandma. Something's different. And she's so frustrated that nobody will explain to her what's going on, which I think must resonate with kids everywhere. What did you think about that? Did that hit home with you? Oh, absolutely. Like the way parents feel like they're kind of protecting you by not telling you anything. But something also very interesting is that there's something as an adult now, like as an adult with children, that the relaying of complex information 
is actually um, perhaps more taxing on the adult than the child. Like when you have to relay that someone um, has died and then you have to also explain death in a way that, you know what I mean? That, that, that chokes you up. Sometimes you think it's about protecting the child, but I've been in instances where you have to constantly reiterate that someone is not coming back or will never be back. And it's just like, I don't want to do it. Like, <laughs> you know, or so that, that level of like kind of emotional work is, is, is tough. It's tough. Well, and I think kids on the other side, it's not only getting the sad news and processing the sad news, but seeing the person who is relaying that sad news sit with that and process it in whatever way. Like I remember the first time I ever saw my dad cry was at my great grandmother's funeral and I was probably 12 or 13 and I knew he was sad obviously but when he gave the eulogy and he started crying I was like whoa 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 whoa, whoa. what it kind of rocks your world it absolutely rocks your world because there you you have this persona this image of your parents right they can tell you with such a stern face to like fix your like do your homework and like, you know, like they're oftentimes the absolute authority that you come to them when you're feeling emotionally fragile and then to see them kind of live lose it your foundation shakes it does the introduction to um grandma and the way that she thinks about grandma is one of my favorite quotes i just highlighted it because yeah really. um i heavily related to grandma in this moment she said <laughs> she says i always like the way grandma looks because she doesn't wear too much makeup and her hair is always fixed she's fat but her dresses are pretty. And I was like, honey, I'm grandma. Okay. Her dresses are pretty. Love it. I'm here for it. Yeah. She doesn't care. Yeah. She lives by herself in an apartment in New York City. She's over here slaying, like, right, like slaying the runway. I love it. I love it. I thought the grandma was cool too. And, and to see Sarah like process the fact that she lands in Hawaii and she doesn't look like that anymore. Yeah. She's starting to understand that like something is off. Yep. And she feels as though people are treating her like a baby, which I I connect with even now as an adult. Like even as an adult, sometimes I'm like, parents, I'm 32 years old. <laughs> Why are you not telling me things? Like I'm I'm not a child. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. She can tell something's wrong. And finally her Aunt Carrie is the one who like tells it to her straight. And I feel like everybody needs an Aunt Carrie. Yeah, I remember that. The, uh, Aunt Carrie just sat them down and was like, look, here's what's happening. Even though I do feel like uh, she could have had a lighter touch. You know, Aunt Carrie was just like, look, uh, she's gone. She's never coming back. Deal with it. And then sunglasses came down. <laughs> yeah. Okay, Aunt Carrie. There's a, there's a middle ground here between like not telling someone and just saying, you know, see ya. Sayonara, suckers. Yeah, it was pretty harsh. And she like kind of tried to explain to the kids why their mom had been behaving strangely. And I did appreciate that because I think like, I think when you're a kid trying to understand adult situations, it's almost impossible. And like all that Sarah and Sam know is that their grandmother is sick and that their mom is acting weird. And I would imagine like taking myself back to being 10, 11, 12, like just figuring out how to sit with the fact that your grandparent is sick, that's too, like that's the whole thing that you're processing. You don't have space in your brain to try to figure out why your mom has completely disconnected from you. And so Aunt Carrie explains like, you know, mom just like doesn't have room right now. This is really like a bandwidth issue. Like this is about burnout. Like mom is burned out in 2023 speak. Yeah. 
I mean, she's uh, halfway across, like she just flown across to to Hawaii. And I mean, world's smallest violin. I was like, honey, you're living. (laughs) (laughs) For her husband's job, like she had to leave her job behind too, which I thought was like, as an adult, I'm like, I appreciate that more because I'm like, I I don't know that I would. That's hard. Yeah. Yeah. Pick up, leave everything five months. And like the way that she talks about the house, just like, I don't want you touching anything. Nothing really belongs to us. Right. And you can tell that she's just really disconnected from this experience. Even in the end, when they have this big kind of argument about broccoli, which again, a lot going on, but um, she just turns and says like, it's all because we're here and doing this. There could have been some underlying tension about even having to, to do all of that. Yeah. I mean, honestly, I feel like picking up your family for five months is probably like a bigger pain in the ass than picking up your family for a longer haul because it's like she's not quitting her job. Like I'm sure she's thinking she'll go back to work. She's not really taking her kids out of school forever. Like everything is so temporary that that must be harder. Like that's just a hard thing to get around. So the fact that now her mom has come to visit and she's sick and has this horrible prognosis, that's devastating. And then unfortunately, grandma dies. And I am fascinated always, by the way, in which children's authors portray loss and grief for their readers. And I'm wondering if you have any thoughts about how she did that, Nikki. Like, we get Sarah's reaction because she's sharing about it to her classmates. And then we also get Sarah's account of the celebration of grandma's life that they have and the conversations that go on among family members. So I just love to hear um, how you think Jan did on that. That is precisely why, like, what I actually kind of loved about this is the way that she talks about the differences um, that people actually move through and process grief. So, like, Emma is sitting down in, in, this, in this process. So, like, in this section, she says, all the time we were eating, someone would start, remember when? And then they tell a story about grandma. Mm-hmm. And, like, this discussion of the way they're processing grief through memory and not always joy. It's not like everyone's just rolling around laughing, but remembering stories and like doubling back on your memory becomes a way to process like difficult situations. And, and honestly, this is like doubled in the entire book. Like if you think about the broccoli tapes, her making these tapes are about like creating this oral history or this memory of this that feels really um, difficult for her, that feels really disconnected for her. And so the the exact same way that this family is like running tapes on grandma is the same way that she's processing her own grief about kind of being snapped up and thrown into Hawaii. I feel like there's a that, that theme about how people manage. It's like, oh, you know, you're actually very much a part of your family in this way, if this is the way your family processes this. Yeah, I also, I really liked the way that the author portrayed grief as nonlinear. I thought that was really accurate because after grandma dies, it feels to Sarah like she kind of gets her mom back for a day, like mom is back to herself and she's happy to be spending time with her children and she puts together this whole celebration picnic for them. And then she gets triggered by something and she breaks down again. And I don't know that I would have appreciated that as a kid. In fact, I'm sure I didn't. But now as an adult, having processed my own grief and having watched other people process grief and having listened to lots of podcasts about grief, et cetera, et cetera, like it's so true that grief is not linear. Like you can think that you're having a great day one day and you're like, oh, I am moving on. And then the next day 
you're like, I just heard that song and nothing will ever be the same again. Yep, absolutely. It's like she keeps running on this loop of trying to move on and have a good day. And then suddenly it's like, again, that notion of memory again, you remember that you'll never see your mother again. And it's just this, this horrible loop that keeps coming. And you, and I think grief is maybe just knowing what to do when that record scratches again the next time. So I had a therapy session while reading this book, as I do every week. But it's sort of interesting because something came up in my session that made me think of this book. And so I thought I'd share it. Another kind of parallel that I seem to share with Sarah even all these years later So when my grandmother passed away, and people, a lot of people listening know this story, she died extremely suddenly, um, was very healthy, and literally one day took a catastrophic fall and had an awful head injury. And we picked up my puppy two days before this happened. People who follow me on Instagram know him well. He's a golden retriever named Irving, and I'm obsessed with him, which I always kind of like, haha, like I love my dog, like people love their dogs. But we were talking about, I don't even remember how this came up, but we were talking about anxiety recently in therapy and how one of the things that I often do when I'm feeling extra anxious is just to to spend time with him. Like he calms me down. And I started to cry about him, like crying, talking about my dog. And we were talking about how because we brought him home two days before my grandmother took this catastrophic fall and we had to put this tiny little puppy back in the car, drive him two hours to be with my family, not knowing what that was going to look like. I was at my parents' house with him for two weeks, like going through all of the ceremonies of mourning my grandmother, et cetera, that he is sort of inextricably linked to that event. And my therapist said, I wonder if there was like some transference of like your affection for your grandmother to Irving, which which at the time like sounds kind of nuts because I had a very special relationship with my grandmother. I lived with her um, in a lot of ways. She was very much like a mother to me. And now I was like, oh, I, did I really put that onto my dog? But I, I wonder how much that's also true of Sarah in this book because Broccoli is coming into her life at around the same time that her grandmother is leaving it. And so she clings to Broccoli in the same way that I cling to Irv. Yeah, because she wants to save him. You know, yeah, she wants to make him her. Actually, sorry, <laughs> her as they found out. Um, yes, they they want to make her whole again, kind of complete. So she's this scrawny alley cat, and her and her brother venture into this project to make her better. And if you can imagine that, you know the the difference in the shock of the way the grandmother looked when she came, right? You can map that directly onto them seeing a, a sickly, scrawny cat that people have maybe forgotten about. And then having having the kid agency in the way that kids can manage and thinking, hey, we're going to fix the situation. We're going to make this better. Absolutely. So thanks, everybody, for coming to my therapy <laughs> moment. Thank you for indulging me. But I, as I was reading the book, I was like, yes, she's like, transferring her love for her grandmother onto broccoli and it all makes sense to me. So I I felt for her in that moment. It made a lot of sense. So let's take a pause from grief and let's pivot to family drama. And then we'll book, we'll bookmark it with some more grief at the end of the episode. Okay. Can we also add a little bit of like romance because. Oh, I I mean mean, a little bit of sexual awakening. There was something 
happening. It was some growth there. I was like, honey, I didn't know this was going to be a smoldering enemies to lovers. Say less. It was juicy. Also, while we're talking about juicy sexual awakening, I have to call out the sex joke that the dad made. Did you pick up on this? Maybe not. Okay, tell me what did I miss? Okay, so at one point when they're out on the lava rocks, the dad says to the mom, Deli, it's fine if we lose them. We can just make two more. Oh, oh God. Oh, <laughs> oh gosh. So bad. Okay. So bad. <laughs> Let me tell you. Yeah, there's also some weird, there's some, I don't know if this was a sex joke, but it was an underlying sex thing involving broccoli. Right? Like, oh, yeah. The yes, like they, they thought someone was fighting. They're like, we had all this terrible screaming. And then Broccoli comes out like fucking smoking a cigarette. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Super <laughs> chill. It's like, what's going on, ladies? You know, like, seriously. Oh. She's, she's like ready to catch up on how no. things went back there. <laughs> yeah. She's smoking. <laughs> yeah. And there's just all this talk about like impregnating different cats and things that I definitely didn't pick up on as a kid. But now I was like, oh, this feels a little icky. Like the focus on animal husbandry, I guess, was was yeah. a lot for me. But Sarah's crush is a boy named Eddie Nutt, who, as you mentioned, like the name, first of all, is like, mm, bold Eddie name. Nutt. Eddie Nutt with two T's. Eddie Nutt Fox. Look, you can prove. Look at this. Look at this. Oh, yeah. Come on. The tank top. Tank top. T-T. Come on. And these little... Little, Eddie the tank top nut. You know, hoochie daddy shorts. Look at that. All time. Oh, That's yeah. He has muscles bulging, Muscles. Too. And he had a little peach fuzz. Sarah was lost, honey. <laughs> He's an adult. Yeah. He's a grown-ass grown man. man. Peach fuzz? Come on. <laughs> he works at a pet store. He's an adult. Like, come on. But it is enemies to lovers because at first he is just like the most annoying boy to her. She's like, oh, this boy. Like, and he he's teasing her and Sam. Like they meet Eddie the same day that they find broccoli. Like it's all tied up in the same experience at these lava rocks. And at first Eddie is like completely disgusting yes. to her. But it doesn't take long for her to be like, hmm. <laughs> Maybe not so gross. Yeah. It didn't take long for me. I mean. My toxic trait was that I shipped him immediately. <laughs> oh, I was really? like, honey, yes, throw that rock. Get her attention. I, I see you. I see you, Eddie. I see you, Eddie. Yeah. He's just misunderstood because he has a bad relationship with his dad. And that's kind of where we get into the family drama of it all. Yeah. So Mr. Nut with two Ts, he is the purveyor of the pet store who is weirdly obsessed with this fancy cat yeah. named Mrs. Princess Di. Di, which like I'm listening to the Prince Harry book on on audio right now. So I'm like the fact that I was reading about a cat named Princess Di while like hearing his like lovely reflections about his mother. I was like, mm, I wish this cat was named something different. Also, like I just found Mr. Nut's obsession with Princess Di perhaps a bit concerning. <laughs> Um, there are a lot of things that I found concerning about Princess Di. I also felt it was weird how <laughs> jealous Sarah was of Princess Di. Yes. She was just like, look at her. Look how hot she is. Like She was just like very yes. mad um, for Broccoli's sake about Princess Di. I'm just like, honey, it's not that deep. Like, these two cats can live in the same universe. <laughs> right. She's like, Princess Di is so white and fluffy and yeah. beautiful. And like, Broccoli is so scraggly. Yeah. 
She will never be loved the way yeah, Princess Di is. just like, woo, woo, I feel this. You know what I mean? Yeah, even when both cats are pregnant, Sarah's like, oh, Princess Di's kittens are going to be so much cuter than yeah. Broccoli's. And, like, you're not giving your cat a lot of credit. You really aren't. You really aren't. Broccoli's been out here in these streets surviving, bro. Like, her kids going to be strong, you know? Yeah, she, they're going to be smart. They're going to be funny. They're probably going to have great coping yes. skills. Yes. I yeah, I, I think that Broccoli's kids are going to be in good shape. I couldn't help but but infuse this element of race into it. I'm just like, oh, really? Black cat, you're struggling? <laughs> like, you found this cat, she's doing well, and then you see this this other cat who's just well taken care of and just like a little bit prissy, and you're just like, she's so much better automatically because she's trained. And I'm like, mm, I don't know. I'm voting black. <laughs> I'm voting black. I picked up on that too, and I was like, it feels like, it feels like this would have been an obvious... You, did you not notice that you were doing this? Like, look at this beautiful, white, pristine, fluffy yeah. cat who is yeah. worshipped. And then this, like, black street yes. cat. It just, I was like, Jan, yeah. ma'am, may you rest in <laughs> peace. But Jan. also, I, I'm sorry, Jan, this, like, you could have, this would have been an easy fix so that we wouldn't be talking yeah. about this all of these years later. I didn't love that either. But, but yeah, Princess Di had it all. She had it all. Princess Di. She had all of this nice stuff. She had a beautiful setup in the front window of the pet store. And Mr. Nut is obsessed with her and with getting her pregnant so that he can sell her kittens. I just, I mean. That sounded bad. No, no, you're right. You said it, Allie, exactly how we felt it. We're just like, if Mr. Nut had his druthers, would he be an Allie cat? You know what I mean? I don't know. He, he would date Princess Di. His life would be much simpler. He wouldn't have to have emotional intelligence with his son. He wouldn't have to deal with his ex-wife. Right, exactly. He wishes that he was just hanging out with Princess Di. So we find out that, that Eddie's dad is, in addition to being obsessed with this cat, he is really rough on Eddie. Sarah witnesses a couple of moments in which Mr. Nutt is like, I would say borderline, if not outright verbally abusive to Eddie in public, which is super fucked up. And she gets concerned, but in a way she's like, oh, my parents suck too. Like, you know, parents, they're terrible. (laughs) But then she finds out later in the book that Eddie has, has basically run away from home and he wants to sleep on the beach because his mom, who had, I believe, run away to go live in Arizona with another man, she wants him back. Like she calls Mr. Nut and is like, you know, can you send Eddie back? And it feels very much to Eddie like he's a pawn. Like nobody wants me. I don't even want to be with either of you because you're just kind of like sending me back and forth. And I have to say like a lot of this part was convoluted for me because like Sarah's parents got involved in in a way and were like kind of trying to play intermediary between Eddie and his dad. And I, I could, it was obvious that the author was trying to to show young readers that like sometimes parents and kids misunderstand each other, but really it's just because they love each other so much and it doesn't always come out like that. But for me, it was like a little, it was a little messy. I just didn't know if Eddie's dad coming over kind of worried was enough to like, it wasn't like the arc was just kind of like a half of McDonald's arc. You know what I mean? Like it wasn't, yeah, the one. Yeah, it was an end. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. It just didn't feel like it was enough to bring me to the other side. So, like, oh, he's worried for his son. Therefore, like, he's deserving of this kind of end arc at the end. You know, it's not like he. It's not like he actually got 
better, right? When they were telling him about like the the kids about um, broccoli being pregnant, and he was just like, "You should just drown them." I'm like, "What? Chill." That you was know? dark. <laughs> chill, chill, bro. But yeah, I just I felt like just him coming over worried. It wasn't enough for me to say like, "Oh, I now understand him because of his worry for his child." When in fact, like it was a long time that Eddie was over there, and he he just gave him the information and kind of left him alone because he was afraid that he was going to choose the mother. I guess we can assume that, but it also is just like, you're just not emotionally available. Yeah, it didn't quite work for me. And maybe in 1989, it did feel like a big gesture, but I think in 2023, our expectations for someone's willingness to do like the work, capital T, capital W, I think our expectations for that are higher. Um, I think while the bar is often still in hell, I think maybe it's a little bit higher in hell where it's like you have to do a little bit more. And so for me reading this, I'm like, to me, I, I feel like you're still this like emotionally unavailable, emotionally unintelligent, distant dad whose priorities are totally not in order and who's not willing to invest any time in rebuilding a genuine relationship with your son and yet I'm supposed to believe that you guys like went on a boys weekend and everything's fine so maybe this is just a matter of like time and perspective yeah yeah maybe we're just very you know 2023. maybe yeah maybe we are just so evolved <laughs> you know what I like that I like that <laughs> I'm too evolved to understand it yeah I yeah, often feel that way yeah it, <laughs> look at us we're just beyond all of this yeah, we're good. We're good. Well, I I go to therapy. I talk about how I love my dog because I used to love my grandmother. Like here we are. Yeah. I'm evolved. Eddie I'm growing. Could never. Eddie could <laughs> never, and neither could Mister Nut. So they like make up, and Eddie seems to be like past his issues with his mom. And then he and Sarah have a kiss, which is steamy, and like she gets all the feelings. Mm. I was about this mm-hmm. from the beginning because I'm a romance novelist. Literally here. Let me show show you the things that I'm highlighting. Like it's like all these. I'm like passing by all these themes, and then I'm highlighting this shit. Like Eddie looks so different when he smiles. He has these white teeth, and his eyes crinkle up, and he's really not so bad looking. In fact, three dots ellipses. Well, what I mean is, he looks nice when he smiles. Sure, Jan, we understand exactly what you mean. And then there's this moment where she's just like, <laughs> I had a dream, and I was just thinking about Eddie's hands. I was like, honey. Like, about those hands? I was like, uh-uh. Like, even through all of this stuff, I was just constantly highlighting all of the moments where she is, like, completely all in for Eddie. And then I started writing here. I was just like, is Eddie, like, this, like, Byronic hero? I know if I were 12 years old, Eddie would have my whole heart. He would just be everything to me. I'm just, like, rough around the edges. Seems like he doesn't want love. Hmm, moody, distant, <laughs> say less. <laughs> for you, I'm for you, Eddie. Works at a pet store, Works by all means. <laughs> Give it to me. Yeah. But you also, let's keep in mind, you have the visual of Eddie in the top, and that might have also informed your read. You know what? You know what? It, it may have, actually. I'm just like, as soon as I opened this, I was like, oh, they're about to get into trouble, trouble. Yeah, I was shocked by the steaminess of the Eddie moments, honestly, because I don't have Eddie on my cover. And 
I feel like this is some of the steamier middle grade I've read. And look, steam is like a strong word for what we're getting on the page. But this is a book meant for like eight, nine and 10 year olds. And I'm certainly not a prude. But like, I don't think I read a lot of other books when I was that age that were so focused on like a love interest hands, hands, hands on a love on interest me. hands or like dreaming about them on me. Right. The like pitch yes. was like, she was so invested in how weird their kiss was, which was like, I thought very relatable. Um, but yeah, I thought it was pretty steamy for an eight yeah. to 12 audience. Yeah. Um, I did. And again, I was, I, I read it with relish by the end. I was just like, we have come full circle. This is how you end up. You know, I was just very, yeah. yeah. I was very into it. Yeah. We and Eddie's going to come visit yeah. in the summer. He's going to come oh, to Boston. Well. Mm-hmm. well, well. Showing showing everyone her Hawaiian boo. Is this what you did in Boston? <laughs> Let me show you what I did in Hawaii. <laughs> yeah, I think if you ever have writer's block, Nikki, you could do some like fan fiction about them. Oh, my gosh. Them, they're grown up. They're in college. Eddie's just like a mm. hot something. She's coming back to Hawaii for something. Oh, come on. Come on. Yeah. Yeah. I'm already like making notes here. Okay. Broccoli tapes. (laughs) 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 I'm making a podcast, but not suitable for work. Sorry, Jan. (laughs) Wherever you are. So unfortunately, we do have to bookend this conversation with some more grief, although I, I, I don't think my heart can take it. So we're not going to linger on this too much, but I'm just going to, I'm just going to lay it out for you listeners. Broccoli dies. Broccoli dies. And like, not even in a heroic way. Like, it's just like. <laughs> right. Not in uh, battle she, or anything. She didn't right. go out like a G. Like, she just got like yeah hit by some waves. And I was just very. It was underwhelming and epic at the same time. It's just like the way people actually go, you know, in these ways that are surprisingly mundane. I forgot that Broccoli died. So when I got to that part, I think I said out loud, <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> I, I knew she was going to die and I still was like, the like, first of all, the way she related on the tapes, she, she's got her own carry in her because she was like, yeah, <laughs> she was like, "Look, bitch, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna lay it out right now. Broccoli's dead. What's next?" Like she was just very, yeah. yeah. I was shocked. I was like, "I'm sorry, what? Broccoli is not dead." And see, this is the thing that is fascinating to me, like the way memory works. Like I remember where I was sitting when I was reading the book, but I don't remember. I don't remember that the grandmother died. I don't remember that the cat died. Quite frankly, the only thing I, the only thing that I remember, and this has stuck with me is the fact that she was bit by a jellyfish or stung by a jellyfish. Like I, and I, now that I finally know where it came from, because I have had an irrational fear of a serious jellyfish sting since I was a kid. And now I know why, but I did not remember that this cat dies. Yeah. So I hate to break it to you, everybody, but Broccoli is dead. And now they have to like find homes for her kittens, which they kind of like wrap in a shiny bow in a way that I didn't, quite understand like they figured out how to get princess die to basically adopt broccoli's scrawny kittens and they were worried that mr nut wouldn't approve and so like they sort of looped their mom's journalist friend in to cover the story of princess die 
adopting these cats. And honestly, now that you brought up this race thing, I'm like I'm gonna say it. Come with me, oh Allie, because you do you know where I live. Oh my gosh. Is this a weight savior? Is this savior. a white savior, white savior cat? Yeah. He's absolutely out here saving the brown babies. Absolutely. Oh my gosh. Yeah, this fancy white white cat is like, yes, you scrawny street cats can come. Suckle. You can me. suckle me. Look, look at me. She's Sandra Bullock in the blind side. <laughs> oh my gosh, she blindsided. She blindsided the game. <laughs> that's not that's not a more perfect analogy. <laughs> so yeah, I didn't love that. And then the journalist was like, see, this is Hawaii, the melting pot. And I was like, oh, oh, we did not talk about this at all, the whole book. So, like, I don't understand why we're doing that here. Yes, 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 yes. I love that you, you're reading this. How I was reading, I was just like, oh, she saved her, did she? Hmm. You can't see my face on this podcast, but it's doing this. <laughs> it's right? Yeah. Just picture what you think Nikki's face is doing and exactly. probably doing that. Exactly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, so I read that very differently. I was just like, oh, saved. I guess we're fixed. I guess we're fine now that these scrawny street cats have gotten their proper kind of house training and will grow up in a better community, you know? Yeah. I just wanted the I wanted Sarah and Sam to get to bring them home. Like that was the ending that I was looking for. I don't think you can bring animals across a island. I think there's some weird like animal exchange, or, like fauna or flora. You can't even like bring plants or whatever. When I was in Hawaii in December, I'm going to tell you there were multiple cats on the plane. They brought them in? I don't know. I, there were cats on both flights in and okay. out. Check, check my thinking on that. I thought you couldn't like bring animals and plants or something into that. Yeah. So look into yeah, we'll do some research on the, we'll fact check it, everybody. But now it's just like, if they can bring the cat, like, come on, parents, come on, right? Just give when, them something. These kids have been through enough. One kitten, the mother had already almost killed the kittens, giving them like freaking homogenized vitamin D milk, you know? Like, come on, mom. Yeah. This is, it's been a hard couple of months for everybody. <laughs> yeah. So a lot's happened in this book, Nikki, and I'd love to hear your overall impression of it. I know you didn't read this book as a kid, so we can't compare it to your first experience with it. But I guess I'm, I'm most interested in kind of how the Broadway Tapes compares to books you do remember reading when you were a kid and also just kind of generally how you think it holds up to our 2023 scrutiny. A, a couple of things. One, I felt like this had a surprising amount of emotional complexity for this level of book. Right, it was extremely nuanced and layered, and it was essentially about grief and grief management. And I was, I opened this thinking that it was going to be some like reading about some kids stuck on an island getting into hijinks, essentially. But again, it, it was an incredibly complex book about family, about grief, about communication and relationships, and about kind of loving bravely. And I was really pleasantly surprised about it. But there's some stuff that just, you know, didn't age well. Like the way she even describes Eddie when she comes up, you know, she's just like, he's brown and he has these squinty black eyes. And it's just like, well, you know, it's the 80s, you know, <laughs> but right? some stuff just didn't, didn't age well. But again, I did find it really surprisingly emotionally complex. I really did. I'm so glad that I got the chance to revisit it. I, I appreciate you choosing it finally so that I had an excuse to get it and uh, figure out why I was so fixated on it and why I remember it so clearly. 
Um, so thank you so much. And I've loved this conversation that we've had about it. But other than the broccoli tapes, what have you been reading lately, Nikki, that you might recommend to our listeners? I just finished A Caribbean Heiress in Paris by Adriana Herrera. Woo! First of all, spicy. Second of all, it is so thorough, so well done. I enjoyed it so much. I love anything Adriana Herrera touches because she really hits on these emotional levels for her characters, which I just absolutely love. Something that I've read isn't out yet, but The Art of Scandal by Regina Black. And it's just about this woman who accepts this deal from her politician husband to stay in her marriage. But what happens? She, she meets someone. And so it is just, it is so soapy. It is so juicy. And I'm, I'll be so excited when it comes out so you guys can know what I know. What I'm watching a show right now it's a Korean soap and it's called Crash Course in Love. And I love it so far. I'm only four episodes in, but I already love these types of shows where the protagonist is a little bit just off kilter and their relationship is just so weird. And I love it so much. I mean, if you have any Korean soap recommendations, please let me know. But right now I'm really enjoying Crash Course in Love. Great. Listeners, send those recommendations our way. Circulate them. Okay, so Nikki, I'm. this is the part where I embarrass you. There have been two occasions in the past where in this segment where I ask for recommendations from my guests about the books they've loved, on which Pride and Protest has been mentioned. And in both cases, these guests not only just said, oh, this is something that I read recently and really liked, but they said something to the effect of like, this is the best book I read all year. Pride and pr- my horny dummies? Oh my God. Oh yes. my God. Yes. So my listeners are already aware of Pride and Protest. I actually have been on hold for it at the library for like a really long time. So people in Philly love it too. But I, I think we should hear more from you directly once you recover from my embarrassment. But tell us more about your book. Pride and Protest is my love letter to Jane Austen. I grew up just this weird black nerd who was just into Regency, if you can imagine, just like being in like on the concrete jungle of Houston, Texas, and just like wearing an Empire Ways gown for no fucking reason. Like, you know, I was weird. Okay. Um, it started with like watching Clueless in 1995, realizing that that was an Emma remake, and then just I was off to the races from then. And Honestly, my entree into Jane Austen was remakes. And I, I love that so much. And so when I wrote Pride and Protest, as an anthropologist, I was always really interested in how people of different cultures kind of connected. And I had done research on like aesthetics and power and beauty and all of these things. And some of the data from like dating apps like OkCupid and Tinder indicated like that Black women and Asian men were the least responded to in these dating apps. Like they somehow had like fewer, less um, sexual capital, right? In these digital spaces. So when I was thinking about noodling on a pride and prejudice, I was like, like these are archetypical desirable characters. Elizabeth Bennett and Mr. Dorsey are just like high key archetypes of perfection. And I was like, what would happen if I made Elizabeth, this Black woman, and Mr. Dorsey, this Asian man. And then it just went from there. So at the heart of Pride and Protest, it is a retelling. It's a multicultural retelling where (laughs) 
we find our heroine is planning a protest and bumps into Dorsey and the protest and literally mistakes him for help. And hilarity ensues. <laughs> and if they could get over their first meeting, they're at opposite sides of this battle for DC, but they can't help circling each other like magnets uh, for some reason. And they're trying to make sense of it. They're trying to understand their attraction while also kind of fighting for their respective causes. And I tried to resolve it in a interesting way. We'll see how that actually works, but I love them because they are like brave enough to realize that they were thinking wrongly, which I, I value. And in a city like DC, you know, <laughs> to kind of say, hey, I had this wrong initially. I had this person or this idea wrong. I don't know. I think there's valor in that. That's why I, I love them. Uh, well, I also want to let listeners know that you have been kind enough to offer up a signed copy of the book. So if you're listening the day the episode goes live or the day after, make sure you go over to my Instagram at SSRpod and Nikki will be putting together a fun little signed copy for you. It has been so fun chatting with you, Nikki. I really appreciate your time. This is great. Thank you. SSR is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR Podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind-the-scenes inside scoop, and some good old-fashioned book talk. Find us at SSR Pod on Instagram and Twitter and search SSR Podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hellossrpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast. <laughs>